You're listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. In this week's lesson, Daniel's Prayer. Prayer will always be a mystery to the people of God, but it is a mystery we are committed to. It brings revival, overcomes the forces of evil, and ushers in God's eternal kingdom. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching, and please remember to head on over to ariseministry.org.uk where you can study past modules, register for future modules and see the other ministries we have to offer. You can also follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. And now, over to Philip Edwards for today's teaching. Welcome to our fourth study in Daniel, fourth and uh, final study. We've got a lot to get through tonight, we've got four chapters, so... It'll be fairly quickly and we might move over some things and there's a whole chapter there that gets into some real detail that I've made the decision we probably won't go there uh, because it'll use up so much time but I'll I'll explain it all as we go along. But first let's pray and um, uh, introduce ourselves as it were to God in this Bible study situation. Father we're here and we've come to study your word again and we thank you that you're always ready to uh, open up truth to us and to impress it upon our hearts. Holy Spirit, we just thank you for your presence amongst us and we pray for your anointing uh, on both the teacher and those who are receiving from you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week then, we, studied, uh, we started uh, to study Daniel's visions. Remember, the first half of the book is about stories and narratives, uh, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And then we move into the second half of the book and we are dealing with his visions. He has three visions or dreams. We looked at two of them last week. Uh, The first one, uh, he saw four beasts uh, appearing and the the fourth beast was like um, a super beast and from his head there came horns and from the center came a little horn and we looked at that and examined some of those things and in the second vision he just saw two animals uh, we've said already that the, th- the the story just keeps repeating itself again and again and again there's not new things all along it keeps going back to the the, the kingdoms or the, uh, the empires that, that rise up. In his second vision, he sees just two animals. He sees a ram and a goat. The ram is representative of the Medo-Persian Empire and the goat represents the Grecian Empire. He then goes into great detail describing this antichrist figure. That's really at the heart of the whole study of Daniel, this, this person that rises up. And we've looked at it several times now. Uh, did, he, did he come before uh, with, with the Grecian rulers? Did this Antichrist, was he represented by Rome and how they sacked Jerusalem and the awful things they did to the Jews? Or is it something we're looking forward to, an Antichrist when Christ, just before Christ appears? Um, we'll be going over it again tonight because Daniel keeps going over, as it were, again and again and again, uh, in different ways, of course, to make it all clear to us. In tonight's study, this first part, before we have the break, uh, we'll be studying chapter 9. 
And uh, it, it moves away from his vision, just breaks in here. He's given us two. He breaks away and he's going to come back to it again. Uh, we're going to look at, he, he prays at this particular case. So we're going to look at his prayer. And the whole of um, chapter nine is his prayer. Daniel consults Jeremiah the prophet. He knows from his reading before and his understanding about Jeremiah's prophecies that captivity is for a period. Uh, he knows it's for 70 years. Uh, he's been nearly all of that time in uh, Babylon. He went there, we said probably he was a teenager, 14, 15 years of age. He's probably between his 80s and 90s now. It's come uh, to that time when uh, their captivity will cease and they will be released. Presumably, he's thinking God will take them back into Israel. He reads the scrolls that he has of uh, Jeremiah, and uh, in Jeremiah 25, 11, it says this, This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So he knows exactly how long uh, it's going to take. The time is nearly up. So Daniel knows that what he has to do, he has to plead on behalf of his nation. You're thinking, well, if God's going to do this, if God's declared it, just do it. Why, why are we going to pray and, and intercede? There has to be repentance for things to change. Uh, repentance is a change of mind, but it's an attitude of heart where you come to God and you admit that something is wrong and you want to change direction and go in the direction in which God now wants to take you. And it seems for that change to take place, there has to be this element of repentance. So he is going to represent the nation and pray a prayer of repentance. He prays it, as I say, it fills the whole of the chapter, really. Towards the end, we see that God sends angel, angel Gabriel, to him, and he explains some things to him. Chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes, and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. 
All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the word spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy, O Lord. Listen, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore consider the message and understand the vision." Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. In some ways fairly straightforward. In other ways, might need a little bit of explanation. So um, we'll try and um, unravel some of it. Daniel in his prayer, uh, he agrees with God. It's always a good move, isn't it? because he's never going to get anything wrong. He's perfect. So uh, whenever you find yourself arguing or contesting with him, you're wrong. That's just it. I mean, he's not phased by it. He's just thinking, 
Oh, well, it will come round to my way of thinking because my way of thinking is right and my way is perfect. But uh, I have caught myself doing that from time to time and uh, or sort of arguing my case in some sort of defence. Uh, he, he says you're perfectly justified in everything that you've done. Uh, putting us uh, into captivity was perfectly right. We turned against you, we broke the covenant, we've done all these things. And often I was thinking of the church today sometimes why aren't things working and should we stop sometimes and thinking is there something wrong uh, you promised us that you would refresh us and renew us constantly how come sometimes nations go so long with such a dry period without the movement and the blessing of god and um, maybe we could learn something from this particular verse he says we have sinned and we've done wrong we have been wicked and we've rebelled, he says. We've turned away from your commands. And he pleads, he pleads with God to, to be merciful. He says, we do not make requests of you because we're righteous, but because of your great mercy. Probably nothing has changed. His, Israel will only find restoration through repentance. He prays on his own behalf and on behalf of all the people. It seems though it's important to voice it. Sometimes we think things and think that's good enough, but I think the things that we say are quite vital. This seems to be a common pattern both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Genuine repentance is the prerequisite of God restoring and renewing things in our lives. And maybe sometimes we need to just ask God, where have we gone wrong? What, what is it, Lord? Show it to us because our heart is to put things right and we don't want to carry on in this way. Moses makes this clear in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 30, verses 2 and 3, he says this, And when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. So it, Moses is quite convinced if we go through this process, everything would be restored the way that God wants it to be. It's interesting, this is found in the ninth chapter of, of Daniel. If you were to turn to the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, we won't now, but Nehemiah, remember, he has this great long prayer as well. It's like the chapter nine uh, prayer thing. And it's long and long and extensive and the same sort of prayer as well. But as we turn to the New Testament, we find a similar thing. Remember Peter on the day of Pentecost, he reminded the Jews that they had done wrong. It says in Acts uh, 3 and 19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Maybe we think it's very dry, this Christian life of ours. We need to have refreshings regularly from the Lord, really. And maybe the answer is there. This is a New Testament verse that we need to turn and repent and make sure it's clear. So Gabriel comes and speaks to him. Uh, the 70 years of exile, it represented something. It represented the 490 years that Israel had failed to keep the law of God. He, 
uh, again, it's Jerry Mower, or it's in Chronicles as well, I think, where he makes special reference to the fact that they haven't kept, kept uh, the Sabbaths regarding the land. The idea is after six years of ploughing into the land, you leave the land fertile and then it, it's refreshed for a year and then you start again and God will give you sufficient in the six years to cover the seventh and you start again. They had this law right from the beginning when they became a nation, but they didn't obey it. They didn't follow it at all once. Now, I don't know whether they didn't trust God or they were just greedy for more. I don't understand why, but they disobeyed God. And so he says to them, well, for every year that you didn't do it, that's one uh, in every seven, out of 490, the mass gives you 70 years. So he says, well, we'll do it now then. So he takes them into captivity and the, and the land is left desolate for 70 years. So the land does get its rest. I think we mentioned this when I was teaching on the covenant. The land is so important. The land comes with the covenant promises of God and it, 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 it's very important in the whole promise and network of God. Uh, it says when the children of Israel, they left the land of Egypt to go into the land of promise. When Jesus comes, he comes to set his kingdom up in this world. So the land is always important to God. That verse in uh, Chronicles is 2 Chronicles 36 and 21. It says, the land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its uh, desolation, it rested until the 70 years were completed. So you see how God puts this emphasis on the land and to be obedient to God. Now, it wasn't only the fact that they didn't do this land rest thing. There was lots of other sins as well, but he makes special point of that one and why it was that period of time. So while Daniel is praying, uh, Dan uh, Gabriel comes to explain things to him. Now it gets a little bit complicated here with numbers, so just stay with me, and it's not that complicated actually. Uh, firstly, uh, strange as it might appear, they were being in captivity for 70 years because of what they hadn't done the previous 490 years. Now, as the angel comes, he explains to him what's going to happen over the 490 years in ahead of them. It, it just, sorry about that, but stay with it. So he thought perhaps he would say something about those years, but he's saying something about the future 490 years now. He calls it a period of 70 sets of seven have been decreed. Now you think, why don't you just call in the years, Lord? That would be a lot easier. So anyway, a set of seven is a week. If each day represents one year, 77 is 490 years. So all right so far, everyone, we're good on this one. Okay. He also speaks about 62 sevens and seven sevens. So you're thinking, what's all this about? Well, if you add 62 sevens and seven sevens, you get 69 sevens. So we get a period of 69 sevens, but also 77. So 69 sevens would be, what do you make it? Seven years short of 490 is 483. Okay, 
Hold this in your mind, okay? 69 sevens is 493, uh, 483 years. Now, Gabriel then explains to Daniel, God would send his people back to the holy city and he's going to send them back for 490 years. But they're still going to be the rebellious people they always were. They seem never to learn, did they? Sometimes you just, you just despair at the nation of Israel. I mean, it just didn't do it once. They did it over and over and over. And really, before you get too critical, we could despair about our own nation, our own lives, our own church, and because we have got so much blessing and prosperity, and yet we can still, you know, disappoint God. It says that after the 490 years, he would do a number of things, and he lists them there. He lists six things. He said he would finish their rebellion. He said he would put an end to their sin. He would atone for their guilt. He would bring an everlasting righteousness. He would confirm the prophetic vision. And finally, he says he will anoint the most holy place. Some people would teach that all of this occurred at Calvary. When Jesus went to the cross, he accomplished all of these things. They believe that everything that was perhaps planned for the Jews has been accomplished. It was accomplished in the Old Testament and there are no further promises for the Jews. He has no further plans for them. They no longer fit in to the plans of God. That's what uh, some teachers might put forward. Another group, another group who disagree with that would say, no, only the first three of these things were dealt with at the cross. And the three that follow, they apply particularly to the Jews and they will happen later. So the things they would agree that happened at the cross was they would finish their rebellion. There would be no more rebellion after the cross. He would put an end to sin. Well, we can say, yes, that's definitely happened. And he would atone for guilt. And we say, yes, we are atoned for. We would agree with that. The three other things, they would say, these apply to a later time to the Jewish people. Israel will not realise the effect of this atonement that Christ has made for them until after the tribulation. It's during the tribulation they realise that Jesus is the Messiah and in the accepting of him that's when the atonement is totally fulfilled. When Israel will recognise that Jesus is the Messiah and establish his kingdom physically in Jerusalem. So it depends where you come from, you see, what you believe and what you're persuaded to believe. You can believe, and this is not to be anti-Semitic in any way, please don't interpret it as that, that the, the plans where Israel fitted into the story of God have now finished. And what, we, what he deals with now is his church, the Gentile converts, Jewish converts, Christians, and they carry on with the plans of God. I can't tell you which to believe. I can't tell you which to think. There's so many of these things 
which are disputed in scripture, we have to work it out ourselves. And for anyone to dictate, I mean, people can only tell you what they believe and what they think and how it works out in their thinking and their mind and what God has shown them. But we have to work it out for ourselves. Now, it, it doesn't affect your salvation whichever way you believe it. It's the outworking of things. And in the end, it's the fact that you're trusting in Jesus and you're born again and you're saved and you're living as godly a life as you can. And whatever works out, works out. That's how most people think about the end times. Well, it'll just pan out the way it's going to pan out and we'll just, just deal with it then if we're around to, to deal with it. It can be determined from the time of the prophecy to when Christ came and died was 69 weeks. We're getting back to this 69 and 70 now. Stay with me. Okay. So from, from the time that this prophecy was spoken to the time when Christ died was 69 weeks, which was exactly 483 years. Now, one interpretation places the 70th week as the seven years of tribulation, which is still in the future for all of us. So then the seven weeks of tribulation added to the 483 years that we've got already for Christ to come makes it the 70 weeks, the 490. Consequently, the number would symbolise both the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Have I made that clear enough? I need some nods from, yeah, I hope so. Um, if not, then I can always see you again, but I can't see people online uh, uh, again. So uh, I think it's fairly straightforward. And of course, you have to follow uh, the, the thing along. And you're thinking, hmm, it seems a bit complicated, but perhaps it had to be complicated if there was a, a period of time with a long gap and then another period of time, and this is how he has expressed it. During those 490 years, Jerusalem is completely rebuilt and uh, with great streets and strong defences. The defences in Jerusalem were so strong that actually there was one wall and then another wall and uh, three lots of walls around the city that when the Romans come to sack Jerusalem, remember in AD 70, that's one of those periods that we think might be the Antichrist period, it took them five months to take the city and a colossal one million, one million people died in the taking of that city. Now, that's a phenomenal number in the taking of one city all those years ago. Uh, but they had fortified the city so well because the Romans were good at what they did and they just completely uh, slaughtered and murdered and scattered uh, millions of people in the end. Before we go into uh, the next bar, which is um, the introduction of his uh, final vision here, I'd like to play it and then after the break we'll come back and we'll study it here. That's how it works out time-wise. So if you'd be patient with me, I'm just going to uh, set the machine up again and we're going to be listening together to chapter 10. Chapter 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. 
the understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man highly esteemed, he said. Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Okay, I wasn't sure whether we would have enough time to do the next chapter. The next chapter is fairly long. Uh, it would be a shame to jump there as that takes us into it. Now, what he's done there, he's explained about uh, what's going on in the heavenlies, and we'll, we'll look at that uh, when we come back after the break. Now, just brace yourself for this next chapter because it goes into such detail and um, it takes some application, okay, to follow it through, but we'll, 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 we'll play that chapter together now. Thank you. Chapter 11. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, 
but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days she will be handed over, together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold, and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south and he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. After this he will turn back toward the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it, and then return to his own country." At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. 
Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword, or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them he will honor a god of fortresses, a god unknown to his fathers he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mightiest fortresses with the help of a foreign god, and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people, and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end the king of the south will engage him in battle, and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt, with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in a great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. I've read, obviously, around there, because I'm a bit like you struggling to uh, work all this stuff out, and because bits of it fit into the historical picture, and they can give you dates and kings and, and how that fits in. Some of it uh, doesn't, and so when you're left with that, you ju you're left with it. You can't know what to do with that. And then uh, others say it's something that's going to happen in the future during the tribulation and the Antichrist arising and what's going to happen in the world. But they can't make it all fit there either. So it's a little bit complicated. And so uh, I'm still open on the whole thing. And um, uh, so what I'll do, come back after the break and then um, I'll pick through some of it because it's, it's really tricky. Not too much, but then I'll move on to the last chapter uh, and that's a whole lot clearer to understand. So let's have a little break now and we'll come back after the break and look at that. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. We've looked then at chapter 10. That's the chapter I thought maybe... Uh, uh, we, we won't do that. Uh, uh, chapter 11, sorry. Uh, but we had time, so uh, we've looked at that. I hope it didn't leave you too confused or too cold, uh, but um, uh, we'll, we'll move on now. So there's the last three chapters. It's all about the vision uh, that he has. It's similar to everything we've said before. I haven't introduced anything new from when Nebuchadnezzar 
first had the dream of the four nations and, and all that comes as a result of that. What we did see, though, in that uh, last passage that we were reading um, is that there's uh, an additional thought of there is something happening in the heavenlies that we've never seen before. It's never been explained before. Uh, we get uh, maybe a picture of it in Job where uh, God is having a conference in the heaven with his angelic beings and it, it appears that Satan appears at this conference and we get a little insight of the heavens, of things are moving and, and, and angels are moving and there are things that are happening in the world up there that we don't really know or see or understand. And in this passage here, we get a little insight of it. He said, you know, from the day you prayed, I left, come and bring the answer. But um, I was apprehended, the angel Gabriel says, uh, in the heavens. We'll look into this a little bit more uh, later. He talks about, though, um, again, the Persians and the Greeks. And uh, he says how the Prince of Persia uh, must be moved out the way and then the Prince of Greece then takes its place. So that's really what we've been looking at all the time. The, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. It's still on that theme because uh, it's a historical setting. Um, he talks about uh, the, uh, again, this, this idea that a king comes and uh, a king invades Jerusalem, that's clear, whether that was historical or future. Uh, he sets up idols in the temple, we saw that again. Uh, he exalts himself above God, as we read there, and then he suddenly comes to ruin. So that picture is repeated again and again and again for us. So uh, of all the awful things that happen, and whether it's to just the Jewish people or whether it will be the church in the end, uh, we've indicated completely in the end. As I said, there's endless debate about it. If you dig, you'll be digging a long time and uh, lots of people have made lots of comments and so, but I'll leave that up to you. There's a problem with all the symbols and the numbers they don't all work out um, because perhaps people have lost things in history or things weren't recorded right for us. So it's very hard to look back at 160 years before Christ and pin it all together because historically all the facts are not there. And when you're pointing to the future, you don't know what the world will look like. You don't know how powerful Israel will be. You don't know what alliances there will be or nations around them or so forth. So very hard to put the whole thing together. It does open up the possibility, though, that the three uh, proposals of this Antichrist, they're all true. Uh, we know two of them have happened in that when we talk about uh, Antiochus and we talk about uh, the Romans uh, under Titus attacking Jerusalem, and, and perhaps they fit in with this. And so somehow he's prophesied them all together, lumped them all together. He's how confusing can that be? Well, sometimes it's a bit like that. A bit, a bit of this prophecy applies to that and a bit of it applies to this and another bit applies to something in the future. And yet he said it as one event, but it's, it's a, a combination or a mixture of the three.
The book, though, is designed to give us hope. That's the idea of it. Whatever generation we're coming from or into, uh, there is always going to be persecution against the Christians, persecution against the church. Now you say, well, I live in the UK and I don't really experience persecution. Well, you're very fortunate where you live because there's liberty. Now, there might be more persecution in years to come. We don't know. Uh, but there's lots of places in the world where there is extreme persecution and you have to be uh, very careful and you operate secretly as a Christian. Jesus uses the imagery of Daniel when he speaks uh, naturally and because uh, he talks about the forces that are arrayed against him and, and the leaders he has confronted as though there are, there are spiritual forces behind them. So when you see the religious people of the day wanting to kill him, what is motivating that? Is it something in the heavens, a force in the heavens that is seeking to oppose the work of Christ and the work of God in the world. And we see John doing the same thing. You know, the guy who has the, uh, the vision of, of, of Revelation, he uses some of the language of Daniel to describe what it is he's seeing. And uh, he describes it as a force that is set against the things of God. The book of Daniel also shows us, it shows us a pattern and a promise. Uh, the pattern is that all human kingdoms become violent beasts in time. So uh, if they leave God out of the situation, if uh, they end up glorifying their own power, uh, every despot was like this. Um, I, keep, I keep mentioning Putin because they're so current and that's so something we can look at. Um, he glorifies his own power and yet he's, he's wasting thousands and thousands of his own people and their lives and, and generals as well uh, because he's lost with this ideology or this uh, powerful force that's operating in his life that I think is, is in the heavens. Uh, we generally just look to judge things with our sense knowledge and we look at things and we think, you know, oh, how could he do that or why could he do that? But there are forces that are at work. Uh, these sort of people, they redefine what's right and wrong. There could be nothing wrong, uh, sorry, right in what he's doing in, in, in the Ukraine, just slaughtering people and displacing them and just destroying a nation. And yet he says, this is right. I'm doing something that is good. I'm cleansing the world of something. And all the world is looking at him and thinking, no, you're not. But see, you become a brute beast. You, you don't think clearly at all. And they don't acknowledge uh, God as king at all. And the promise, the promise in Daniel is one day God will confront the brute beast. He will be dealt with finally. Of course, he deals with uh, the false prophet and the, the Antichrist in Christ, and he deals with them. They are the force, they are the power behind these brute beasts, and he will deal with them. He'll rescue his world from them. This is his world. I know that Satan is the god of the air and the prince of the power of, of the world as it is now, the god of this world, but he will rescue this world again. He will establish his kingdom 
throughout the world. And so it is to every generation. This book speaks a message of hope and should motivate faithfulness from his people. Daniel refers to the conflict uh, among earthly kingdoms and uh, somehow imagine there's, there's forces in the heavens that are moving and somehow as forces come up and powers come up, what is happening on the earth is simply a reflection of what's moving in the heavens. So as we pray, it could be that God shows us spiritual pictures. This is what Daniel was receiving. He was receiving understanding of what was happening so he could pray more effectively. God was choosing to explain and show things to him. They were reflections on the earth. The prince of Persia being removed and the prince of Greece taking his place. We reflect on the life of Jesus and he was dealing with demonic evil forces all the time. Apart from what we see here, this picture, there isn't much in the Old Testament at all about evil forces, evil spirits, demonic forces, none. As soon as Christ comes onto the scene, it hits us all the time. Is just, his, his, uh, what is it that caused the King Herod to kill all those babies at his birth? What was that, just an angry king? I don't think so. Spiritual forces and, uh, and, and all the other things that are happening to Jesus. And he, he tries to wake up, us up to the fact that the conflict that we face is not a conflict of flesh and blood, but it's of spiritual forces. Now, you can just throw your hands up and say, oh, I can't be bothered with all that. Well, then we'll never defeat him. We'll never fight the battle. We'll never know how to stand. We won't know how to pray. And so we need to have our eyes open to this whole spiritual dimension. Don't forget, Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, he says. We wrestle against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Do we know that? Do we know that we're fighting against forces? When things start to go wrong, things start to press in on us. Uh, it's a spiritual force that's at work. That needs to be our first thought, not our last thought. How am I supposed to pray? God, show me what's going on here so I might take my stand. Spiritual battles that we face continually. Satan and his spiritual forces are exercising an influence over the present evil age, it says. Satan is the god of this world. You say, but through the cross, didn't Christ disarm principalities and powers? How come they are still fighting against us? How come they still war against us? Well, unless we first realise, and then by faith, uh, exercise authority over them, it's not going to happen. I tried an exercise in a couple of churches I was at recently uh, to encourage them to speak out the name of Jesus. See, spiritually, the name of Jesus is a powerful name. It's above every name. 
But if we don't speak it out, then what power is there in it at all? You say, well, I think about it and I know it, but that doesn't help. So if there is a force that's coming against you and you know that the name of Jesus is more powerful than anything else in the world, and at the name of Jesus, everything must bow, it must come off your lips to have any effect. So I said to the whole congregation, I've done it a couple of weeks running now in two different churches, I think they all think I'm totally mad and probably won't get invited back there again. But I said, these churches that I'm in now, they're shrinking and uh, they're being bound as it were, there's, there's no growth, there's, there's no life. Can we just use the name of Jesus now and speak over this situation? You know, so a couple, Jesus, Jesus, you know, like almost terrified to, to speak out the name and the authority of that name and the power that the name can release. You see, if we don't exercise authority in a spiritual way, although Satan has been disarmed, technically he can still beat us and defeat us and destroy us and kill people as well, if he wants to, if we don't fight against him and take our stand. Now, I don't want to terrify people okay, about such things, but we are in a battle. We are in a warfare against spiritual forces. That's obvious, and we need to engage in the warfare. We know that, ultimately, Daniel teaches this, and Scripture teaches it, that we will, uh, we will win. We will win through. We will. Uh, uh, God will come and judge everything, and then we will be victorious. I'm going to listen now to chapter 12, uh, and we'll um, bring our study uh, together at the end here with chapter 12. Again, your challenge with this thought about is this tribulation something that's going to come to the church as it already passed? And when is it going to come? For those of you that are listening, uh, it might not come in your time. You might passed on and it's for another generation we don't know uh, I tend to think that uh, God will prepare his church more when it is going to actually happen and there'll be far more clarity and teaching about it because he wouldn't want us to be ill prepared um, I've probably got to an age where I don't have to worry too much about the tribulation I tend to think uh, but we never know. I mean, things can move along quickly in life. But uh, let's um, listen now to the final chapter here, uh, chapter 12. Chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. 
One of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times and a half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. This great tribulation. If one believes an Antichrist is yet to rise up uh, before Christ returns, and uh, it is possible, God's people will have to endure uh, severe testing if that's the case, if it's God's people that go through this terrible uh, time of tribulation. Some Christians believe that, that they will have to go through it. Others believe that this terrible time of tribulation is not for the Christian, it's simply for the Jewish people. And it only applies to them. And uh, the Christian people see the beginning of the time of sorrows for three and a half years. That's where he makes reference to the three and a half there. And then they're taken out. That's where we have the rapture coming, that these people are taken out, and it's the, the Jewish people that have to go through this awful time of tribulation for those three and a half years. Again, we have to think carefully. Is that true? Do I believe that? Do I believe in a rapture? Do I believe in the church being taken out? Do I believe in them going through it? Um, we have to read and you read different scholars and they'll teach you different things as you depend on who you read. Daniel says in uh, 12 and 1, there'll be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. So it seems as a horrific end. If, if it's true that there is a tribulation and the Jews or the church go through it before Christ returns. It seems it'll be a, a terrible time. Jesus, perhaps drawing his teaching from Daniel, he says this in Mark 13, 17 to 19, how dreadful it will be in those days. Pray that this will not take place in winter because these, because these will be the days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never be equaled again, making reference to this terrible time of tribulation. Was he talking just about the Jews, or was he talking about all Christians? Matthew 24 and 21. In those days, uh, sorry, if those days are not cut short, no one will survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days, he says, will be shortened. John also refers to an intense period of trial and suffering when he sees a dragon 
enraged and making war on God's people. He says this in Revelation 12 and 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Is he talking about Jewish people who have converted in the time of the tribulation? Or is he talking about Christians? You see, it's, it's open. We really don't know. But in Matthew 25, where Jesus is talking about the sheep and the goats, he's talking about people who have, have helped the brethren, visited them in prison, looked after them, cared for them, fed them. And, and he says, because of that, you go to the right, whereas those who have not done it go to the left. Now that, that is a challenging verse of scripture for some people because what he's saying is you're saved because of your works. And you go, well, we're not saved because of our works, we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Yet Matthew 25 indicates that because you've done good things, you're saved. Is it possible because at the end times, those that help the Jewish people who are the ones being truly persecuted, God looks mercifully upon them because they have helped the brothers. That sort of passage of scripture fits into that nicely. Again, you have to ponder these things. <laughs> this period in then is known as the Great Tribulation. When it comes or to whom it comes. The message for God's people is the same from both Daniel and from Jesus. It says in Daniel 12 and 13, as for you, Go your way to the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. In other words, persevere to the end, he said. Don't give up. And in Mark 13, 13, we get this. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And I've heard people, you know, get quite frightened about if the persecution would come, would I stand or, or would I, you know, buckle or if I buckle, would I lose my salvation? Well, I don't think we can lose our salvation. We can buckle, I understand that. Maybe we've buckled many times in our lives and under such uh, strict persecution, we might buckle again. Endurance to the end does not earn salvation for us, but it marks out that we are already saved. Uh, you'll be surprised under persecution whether you would stand or not. I would think many would stand and we would surprise ourselves that we would take that stand when it comes to it. In the cold light of day, we don't even think about it. And if we do, we, we worry about it. But when the time comes, it might be a whole lot difference. The assurance of your salvation will keep you going through the times of persecution. It talks also in that passage that we just listened to there about a name, your name written in a book. The angel assures Daniel, those names written in the book shall be delivered. In Daniel 12 and 1 it says, But at that time your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Hmm. Appears that God's a bookkeeper. He keeps a record of stuff. Well, I've sort of known this. Uh, I mean, he, he doesn't actually have a book, but he doesn't forget anything. 
So everything, he sees everything. He said, if you give a, a cup of water to the least of one of these, I've clocked it, I know it, I've recorded it. I know everything that you've said and done and thought and action, it's all logged in me. I've got it all here. So I could say he's a bookkeeper. He's written our names in what's called the book of life. If we are trusting in Jesus as our savior, our name has been written in the book of life. The sins that we have committed have been blotted out of the other book. Revelation 3, 5 says, he who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Our salvation doesn't hang then on a delicate thread. Don't worry about that. Our salvation is secure and it's certain and Jesus tells us that. He says in Luke 10 and 20, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Not to be blotted out or to be removed, it's there. I want to now perhaps bring this whole uh, teaching and if you've struggled through it with me, uh, I do sympathize with you. Uh, I've struggled to some extent as well. Uh, I was challenged to teach on this and so I rose to the challenge. Uh, let's just summarize uh, the whole picture then. The opening six chapters of some of probably the most exciting stories in the Bible, especially of deliverance, be it, you know, the fiery furnace and Daniel in the lion's den and just, uh, yeah. Also the, the conviction and courage of these young boys taken into captivity and uh, just resisting the authorities, being in a place where off with your head, was easy and you could easily be put to death and yet they were prepared as young boys to just stand firm for their Lord Daniel and his three friends. We are intrigued by the vision and the scope that this book covers. It covers centuries really and it's just, uh, just amazing. Not only Israel, uh, Israel's own history, but it takes uh, the whole history of the world, it, it brings it all in together. It sweeps across human history from the Babylonian Empire, hundreds and hundreds of years until the fall of the Roman Empire. Daniel, in his writing, he masterfully blends the sacred and the secular together. The history of the world uh, shows and showing them that they're entwined, as it were, with with the history of God's people and God himself. So we, we easily separate secular, uh, you know, from that which is sacred, but this book doesn't. It says it's all working together, you can't. Daniel shows us there's more going on in this world than our eyes can see. There are spiritual forces that we've been uh, talking about just now that we don't see them, but they're at work all the time. They never sleep, they never rest. They're, they're at war. There are wars all over the world all the time as Satan is moving his forces within the heavenlies to, to do what he needs to do. There's a cosmic battle taking place. This we do not see with our natural eyes, but possibly with our eyes of faith if we want to. Ultimately, the book is about God. It's about his character. It's about his plan for the world and it's about the purposes of God in the world. Now, we often have 
reason to worry and to be discouraged. This book is to encourage us and to cause us to be faithful. It's a powerful reminder that God is on his throne and he will be victorious in the end. It helps us to see that we only live in a small space of the history of the world and yet we're part of the whole thing. The church has been here for 2,000 years and before that the people of God were here for 4,000 years and so we, we've got 6,000 years of the people of God and we just take up a small fraction of it and yet we're included in the whole thing. So when the book speaks to us, it speaks to all of us. Sometimes we're involved in certain things and sometimes we're not, but we're part of the whole picture. So we can identify with those that suffered, perhaps in that first tribulation, those that suffered with the tribulation that came from the Romans, those that might suffer in a future tribulation, and perhaps we won't, and yet we're part of it. He talks about his people. We're together, corporately together in the whole thing. One day God will come and put the world right. All this mess will be cleaned up. He will destroy all unrighteousness. And he will usher in an eternal kingdom where Jesus is on the throne forever and forever and forever. And we will be part of that glorious, wonderful kingdom. Amen. You've been listening to the Arise Bible Academy podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's teaching and please come on back next week as we begin our new module, Preaching. If you would like to partner with Arise Ministry, you can do so by heading over to our website at ariseministry.org.uk where you can make a secure online donation. You can also now follow us on social media at Arise Ministry UK. Arise Ministry, a living legacy. Thank you.